You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. If you would like to read along, we have quite a bit of scripture today. We're going to be in Acts chapter 13, looking at verses 13 through 52. And I realize that is, that is quite a bit. If you're using that Bible that is provided somewhere under one of the seats near you, that'll be on page 979 if you're opening your app or your Bible. I'll give you a little time to get there. Um, we have a lot of scripture to look at, and I had to, had to ask, am I just going to, to summarize or are we going to read it? And I felt like it's certainly best that we would read it. And so what we're going to see is, is we're going to see Paul and Barnabas doing some things in a narrative, and then there's a recorded sermon in the middle of this section of Scripture by the Apostle Paul. It's actually his longest recorded sermon, and we're going to look at that after we've looked at the narrative bookends. So what I'd like to do for the reading is read the first part, and then we're going to skip over for now Paul's sermon, look at the last part, and then we're going to come back to that sermon. So let's go ahead and look at Acts chapter 13, first, verses 13 through 15. It says, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John left them and went back to Jerusalem. They continued their journey from Perga and reached Poseidon Antioch. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading the law and the prophets, the readers, excuse me, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, "Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, you can speak." And then Paul gets up, he's going to preach that sermon we're going to look at in a few minutes. <clears throat> and then his sermon is concluded, and let's jump now down to verse 42. It says, "As they were leaving, <clears throat> Excuse me. As they were leaving, the people urged them to speak about these matters the following Sabbath. After the synagogue had been dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking with them and urging them to continue in the grace of God. <clears throat> Excuse me. The following Sabbath, almost the whole town assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was saying, insulting him. Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, They rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord, and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the prominent God-fearing women and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their district. But Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're grateful that you have given the very methods of how we are to proclaim Jesus and what we are to say. Jesus, we are thankful for that message and for that salvation. Holy Spirit, we are so grateful for the equipping and the guidance and the wisdom. So, God, now we ask that you would open our ears to your word, that you would speak to us in terms we can understand, and that you would move us as you see fit to walk with you in a manner worthy of our calling, 
And Lord, that you would send us and give us the words to proclaim, and we would see you glorified greatly. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I hope that by the time I'm done this morning, we're going to see that God's mission is to be done in God's way with God's message. That is the goal we're shooting for. And uh, if you've spent any time talking with me about mission work or about church planting, which incidentally are the same thing, uh, you've likely heard my frustration about how far so many of the churches and so many of the church planting organizations and so many of the missionary organizations have, have just gone off and missed the mark of what we see right here in Acts 13. So many have, have given in to this temptation, this overwhelming temptation to, to come up with their own devised missiological methods, to do it in their own sort of crafted, created way. So many have, have preached and proclaimed a softened message that tickles ears rather than trusts God's mode and God's mission for his message to the world. It's a huge temptation, and it's, it's ransacking the church. And honestly, at times I find myself facing that temptation. You know, maybe if we just did this thing, maybe if we went with this, that church is doing it. Maybe if we did that, it would, it would advance God's message. And maybe if I didn't say this or, or say that, it's a big temptation that bombards all of us. And it bombards me, even for this church. So pray for me. And we need to be praying for ourselves as we proclaim the gospel. We need to be praying for the church because this is rampant. But we have to remember, we must remember God's mission is to be done God's way with God's message. It's vital. So we're going to look at the mode or the, the method of how God would have us to do mission first, and then we're going to look at the message itself. Then we're going to jump into that sermon that Paul preached. And so then after I've worked through both of those things, I'm just going to give us four sort of big overarching things that I'm going to send us out with just to think about this week and pray and talk with God about. So let's start with the mode or the methodology or God's, or God's main way in which his mission goes forward. So what we see here is Paul and Barnabas have worked their way across Cyprus, right, proclaiming Proclaiming the gospel. That's how they did it. They're telling people about Jesus Christ. And then as soon as they've done that, Paul and Barnabas travel by ship across the Mediterranean to Paphos. And then they make their way 160 miles to Pisidian Antioch. Now, this is not the same Antioch they left. If you remember that little Antioch church, it's not the same Antioch. There were actually three cities in the region named Antioch. And it was, they were named after these famous leaders named Antiochus. Um, I was joking with my boys. It's like Antiochus and Uncle Ben, right? <laughs> Antiochus. Okay, and we might think, well, these guys are crazy. Why would they name three cities after these people? Let's be slow to pass judgment. And remember that in America, there are 30 cities and 39 counties named Washington. So this is just what we do, right? We name cities after prominent leaders, and this was one of those cities. Now, we also saw that John Mark didn't end up going with them to one of these Antiochs. He, he decided to return not to the church in Antioch, but back to Jerusalem where Paul and John first found them. We don't know why he decided to turn back. But we're going to see in Acts 15.38 that Paul felt or believed that John Mark had, in his words, deserted them. 
He'd abandoned them in Pamphylia, and therefore Paul didn't want him on the next mission trip. Nope, that guy deserted us. He's not coming, and then it caused this whole big uproar between Paul and Barnabas. That's something we're going to look at when we get to Acts 15. But now it's just Paul and Barnabas, and they don't have their assistant with them. And so then when they get there, after this journey, they arrive in Pisidian Antioch, and the first thing they do is they go into the synagogue on the Sabbath, which was something they could still do fairly easily, because at this point, the Jews didn't know much about Jesus, and they were okay to let other Jews come into the synagogue, right? No problem. Later, there's going to be a really sharp divide. The Jewish people are going to say, that we're going to kick you out of the synagogue if you confess Christ. But at this point, no problem. Come on in. And it seems at this point that Paul must have been recognized. They must have realized he was maybe somebody. There's something going on there because they asked them to speak. It might be, we don't have... We don't, we don't know what their motivation was, but it might be that Paul had trained under a very famous rabbi named Gamil and, uh, Gamaliel, excuse me, and, and they probably thought, well, he was trained under this famous guy, or maybe they even knew Paul. Maybe they knew of him. Maybe Paul had come and he'd, he'd preached there before. This is, causes me just to wonder if Paul had a strong connection, if he was aware of a connection in Pisidian Antioch that would give him the reason to make that long distance to go to that city. Why there? Right? They had already been through Barnabas' island where he was born. They had preached and taught there where there was connections. Maybe there was a connection here. Maybe there was some invitation possibility. Maybe there was something. In any case, they go and they're asked to speak. What an opportunity. So after the Law and the Prophets, that's the, the, the Old Testament way, and even the New Testament at times, way of talking about the Old Testament, that's a way of saying after the Scriptures were read from the Law and Prophets, they asked Paul to speak. And so he stood up and said, you bet, and preached a sermon. What an invitation. Which brings us to God's chief means, his primary method, his mode of advancing his kingdom and saving souls. The proclamation of this news of Jesus Christ, the promised Savior, the one that was foretold in Scripture, and now he's, he's fulfilling all Scripture it was the proclamation that would be the means. Preaching, proclaiming. That's God's plan. That's God's method. Preaching and proclaiming is what Paul and Barnabas did all across Cyprus. Preaching and proclaiming is what they're doing here. Preaching and proclaiming is what John the Baptist did, and then as a result of his preaching, people would repent and believe, and then he would baptize them. Preaching and proclaiming is what Jesus did in his earthly ministry. He would preach constantly, often, the kingdom of heaven is near, repent, believe. And through his preaching, he was calling people to trust him, follow him, believe his words were true. All of this through proclaiming, speaking, heralding. In Mark 16, 15, Jesus told his disciples, and by extension, he tells us, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Paul gives us some commentary on the necessity of this proclaiming, this proclamation, this preaching in Romans 10, verses 14 through 17. If you want to jump over there, it's on page 1005 in the provided Bible, just a few pages forward past Acts. This is the one who's preaching in the synagogue. This is his commentary on the importance of preaching. Romans 10, verse 14. How then can they call on him they have never, or excuse me, have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? 
And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. Oh, but, but Pastor Brian, most of us, aren't, we're, we're not preachers. We're not going to stand up where you are and preach in churches. We're not gonna, I'm, not a, I'm not a preacher. Now, I hear this all the time. I hear this objection to proclaiming the gospel, frankly, quite often. My typical response goes like this. How many people are necessary for the proclamation of the gospel to be considered preaching? How many hearers do you need when you're speaking about the gospel and telling people about Jesus for it to be preaching, for it to be heralding, for it to be proclaiming? How many people are necessary? I mean, Philip, he ran alongside a chariot, he jumped in the chariot with an Ethiopian official, and he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ to one person in the chariot with him. When we get to Acts 16, which we'll see this when we get there, we'll see Paul and Silas in prison proclaim the gospel to just one Philippian jailer. Just one. Oh, I hear you, I hear you Pastor Brian, but that, that's a dialogue. You know, that's just, there's a back and forth. That's not the, is that really the same thing? I don't know. That, there's something, I don't know. That's different, right? There's an argument in some preaching and preacher circles, that there should be a dialogue, they say a two-way communication, rather than what they perceive as a one-way communication. Rather than preaching, the argument goes, there should be a discussion, a back and forth. And I'm going to let you know, I completely agree. I completely join in that camp. And it's my prayer that that is what is happening right now and every single time I step into this pulpit and open God's word. God should be speaking to us and we should be interacting with him. So my part of this whole arrangement is just to be God's means in which he is working to have a dialogue with you and with me. The dialogue in preaching is between God and who we're speaking to. So I agree, there should be a dialogue. That's what I pray for. Now, when there's this many people in the room, right, the use of rhetorical questions and one human being speaking primarily with, with the responses to be pretty limited with maybe just an amen or that's right or preach it or in some churches, mm, oh, right? We don't have that much here, but uh, that can be more appropriate in some circumstances, in some environments, but in other settings, a back-and-forth conversation is very appropriate. That would be the means in which God would use to have a conversation, to share and proclaim His Word through that dialogue and through that discussion. Both formats, if we're talking about who Jesus is, if we are sharing and speaking and discussing good news, both of those formats are proclamation, preaching. And both can be God's means for God's message to be revealed and save people. So in that sense, we're all preaching and heralding the word. Uh, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 comes to mind. Think about that. From those words, we proclaim the gospel, and yet that was a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. That's kind of what I have in mind here. 
So I hope that, that God might be encouraging you to proclaim or to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to others because that's God's mode for his mission. That's his plan. That's his methods. That's what he's given us. Okay, all the other mission stuff that we do, and I know some of you have been on mission trips, we do stuff, right? We, we, we paint orphanages, and we dig wells, and we feed the homeless, and there's stuff that we do. All of that can be a blessing, and all of that uh, can open doors for an opportunity to proclaim the gospel, but the chief means for the gospel work is proclaiming. It is preaching. Speaking, sharing, that's, that's the main thing that God has given to us. Talking to others about God's word, which speaks about Jesus, who brings about salvation to the lost, condemned sinners in need of a Savior. That's the work. That's the task. Okay, so this is why, if you were wondering, this is why we do Eve of Eve the way that we do. This is why we do Field of Families the way that we do. This is why our outreach works that way. This is why when mission teams come here, we have some training to talk about how to proclaim the gospel in our context, and then we do things that provide opportunity for them to have conversation, to speak the gospel truth into our community, that it might stir in hearts and save souls. All right, any other service-related thing that we do, any mission-related thing that we do, we're really intentional about saying, how does this that we're doing connect to the proclamation of the truth of Jesus Christ? That's important. It's vital. Why? Because God's proclamation is God's plan for God's mission. And so we want to make sure we're lining ourselves up with that. Okay, and when we do that, when we do that as God intends us to do, there are only two results that can come from the proclamation of God's word. There are only two. That's how it went for Paul and Barnabas, and that's how it goes for us. Either people will turn to Jesus, or... They will continue where they were at in rejection to Jesus. Okay, nobody's in a neutral position. Nobody's in some intermediate zone. You are either continuing in your rejection or you are drawing close to Jesus. It's one or the other. Those are the only options. Those are the outcomes. And every time I step into this pulpit, those are the outcomes. When I preach the word even to you, you will draw closer to Jesus or you will continue in whatever sin you may be in and reject Jesus. Some of you say, no, what about doing nothing? Doing nothing is actually pushing further away from Jesus every time you choose to do nothing when you hear the call to do something. Those are the only two outcomes. In the case of Paul and Barnabas, a lot of people drew a little closer. A lot of people were interested. They were following him after the meeting. They were talking with him. They said, oh, you need to come back next Sabbath. This is amazing. They were open to hearing more. They, they got a little closer. But some of the Jews grew jealous. And so not only were they rejecting Jesus, they determined in their hearts to push everyone else away too. They weren't going to have it. And that's what happens when we are honest and clear about proclaiming the gospel. And we're honest and clear about it. And if we're theologically honest about evangelism, truly, we shouldn't be telling people at all that they can just better the life by adding Jesus to their life. Right? Just, just add him to what you already have and your life will be great. We shouldn't be telling people that they can make Jesus their Lord. 
You should take that out of your vocabulary. You shouldn't be telling people that they can have a personal relationship with Jesus. You shouldn't be telling them that. You shouldn't be telling people that they can exist forever if they have Jesus. All of those things are not theologically honest and not clear to what the Bible actually teaches. So first, you can't add Jesus to what you already have, like he's just, you know, a side of fries to go with your main meal. With Jesus, it's all or it's nothing. There's no little bit of Jesus to the rest of my life. It's all your life, or you're still in rejection to Jesus. Next, and hear this, Jesus is Lord, whether people submit to him or not. We don't have the power to make him Lord. He is your Lord. Whether you are rejecting him and pushing away from him and ignoring him, he is still Lord. The only power we have is to actually bend a knee Surrender to him and worship him as Lord. Next, everyone has a personal relationship with Jesus because Jesus knows everyone and their heart and their innermost thoughts and every hair that's ever been or ever fallen off their head. That is really personal. Jesus knows everyone better than anyone else could possibly know anyone. He knows you better than you know you. That's pretty personal if you ask me. Everyone has a personal relationship with Jesus. So the real question is, do you have a positive personal relationship with Jesus, a good relationship? Or do you have a negative relationship with Jesus? Do you have a bad relationship with him? That's what we're talking about here, positive or negative. And some people say, well, what about people who've never heard the name of Jesus? Well, maybe they've never heard the name of Jesus, but he knows who they are because he sustains their very existence. It's personal. Everyone has a personal relationship. So when we call people to this, we say, do you want to have a positive personal relationship, a good one? Because everyone does have a personal relationship to the one who is their Lord, who they will one day, whether willingly or not, bend a knee and profess that he is Lord. Finally, Everyone will exist forever. You will exist forever. So it's not an issue of like, if you know Jesus, now you get to exist forever. That's not what's being said when we say you live forever. We'll all live forever in that way if living is just existence. That's not what the Bible says. The issue here is do you want to exist forever in punishment and separation from God? Or do you want to exist forever in the presence of God with his blessing and his salvation on you. The Bible calls separation and judgment death. And presence with God and blessing and salvation, life. So it's eternal death or eternal life. Right? And so, so we proclaim the possibility of eternal life with the Savior who can pull one from eternal death to eternal life if people will willingly submit to Jesus, who is their Lord. Okay, so so these are the aspects of this, and there's one more thing. There's one more part about God's methodology for his mission that I think we really need to understand, and I really need to warn you. Some of you might not like this at all. And you're more than welcome to send me an email, but I'm just going to point you right back to the Scripture. It's important we understand this. It's going to be hard to hear for some of us. Look at verse 48. Look at it in your own Bible. 
Acts 13.48, it says, When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. Let me read that again. All who had been appointed to eternal life believed. We tend to treat evangelism and God's mission as if the verse actually says this. To all who will believe, God will appoint and invite to eternal life. That's not what it says, is it? If we think that's how it works, then we plead with people to believe as if their salvation rests with us, as if their salvation is in our hands. So we try to compel them to believe, but they won't believe unless God has appointed them to believe. Their belief is in God's hands, not our hands. Now, some will say, oh, well, there's a reason not to bother sharing the gospel. If God's got to do it all, then let's just let God deal with it. That is so wrong. That's unbiblical. It's just dead wrong. We share the gospel, and we plead with people, like Paul did, to believe, because their salvation is in God's hands, and God's means to save them is that we proclaim the gospel. So because we know God has a plan to save them, we enter into his plan to proclaim the gospel, and then he will do the work that his word says he will do. So therefore, we passionately, we urgently, we faithfully plead with people. We share the gospel with everything we've got because we know that's God's plan for how they'll be saved. That's his saving mission. That's what God's going to use to bring people to saving faith. That's the plan. We trust God's word is true, and we trust that God's word does what it says. We believe in the sufficiency of this scripture. Therefore, we preach the gospel and not anything else. It's this that does the work. It's the gospel that awakens people's souls to the need for Jesus Christ, their Savior, who saves them. So we don't need to turn to any other gimmicky thing. We don't need to go to any other worldly marketing if we trust God's word. We just preach this. His word says he will do the work. If we do our our part, he'll do his part. Why? Because we do God's mission his way with his message. We preach God's message. That's how it works. So now that we understand the how of mission work, of evangelism, of church planting, of outreach, whatever you want to put there. Now that we understand how God does his mission to the nations and we join in that, we need to think about the message itself. We need to understand that because God gives us the message. It's not stuff we come up with ourselves. Cheeky lines, creative things people want to hear, sticky statements. We, we go with God's message. We preach God's word. So in a minute, I'm going to read Paul's sermon, and I'm going to tell you, it stands on its own. So I'm not going to come in behind and explain a bunch of stuff. His word is preached to those people, and it's preached to us. It's not complicated. We can get it. It stands on its own. But I do want to draw your attention, church, to things that are specific that I think we should see in light of kind of our journey through the book of Acts. Okay, as we read it together, I just want to sort of give you a couple pieces to go, wow, look at that. 
First, I want you to notice how Paul, in his sermon and his proclamation, uses the Old Testament scriptures, which is what was available to him. He didn't have the New Testament to make Christ known. So we could say it this way, Paul trusted God's word and used the scriptures, right? And we should too, right? He's looking back to the prophets who spoke long ago, and he's looking at God's word. I want you to see how he trusts these scriptures. He really trusts the word to do the heavy lifting. He doesn't come in behind it and, and try to unpack it. He just The word will do what the word says it's going to do. He trusts that. He understands it. Next, I want you to notice specifically at verse 39 when we're reading, Paul calls everyone to believe. And then those who do believe, because we're appointed by God to believe, we will be saved. Paul clearly knows that. He says it. He proclaims it. And he calls people to belief. If you're going to share the gospel, call people to believe. If you're in here and you don't know Jesus, I'm calling upon you to repent and believe. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I invite you to come talk to me right after we're done. Come chat with me. Chat with somebody you came with. Talk to somebody who says they're a Christian. Say, hey, what must I do? Because I'm calling upon any of you who don't profess Jesus as your Lord to repent and believe. And we should do that when we share the gospel. And then I want you to notice how honest Paul was with God's word. He didn't sugarcoat anything. He didn't dance around the hard stuff. He was honest with God's message because he believed that God does what God's message promises it will do. And that is that by the hearing of this, people can be saved. Paul trusted the scriptures were sufficient to do the work. We should trust that the scriptures are sufficient to do the work. We don't need to add anything more. And finally, I want you to notice that Paul supplied a stark warning to the Jewish people not to reject Jesus, right? The promised Savior. He he warned them very honestly, very shockingly. And please don't mistake this warning for anti-Semitism or racism or hatred or anything like that. Don't forget, Paul was a Jew. These were his fellow national kinsmen, right? He was warning them sternly because of how much he loved them. He pleaded with them not to reject Jesus because he knew that anyone, Jew or Gentile, who rejects Jesus will not be with God. They will not have God's blessing. They will not be saved. They are not God's people, Jew or Gentile, if they reject Jesus. Instead, if they reject Jesus, they become an enemy of God. The truth, this truth, this biblical truth caused Paul so much pain and agony for his fellow Jews that he wanted to warn them. He needed to warn them, you need Jesus. Don't reject the one whom God has sent for your salvation. He told them the gospel because he loved them. So our love for our family and our friends and our co-workers and our neighbors should compel us to share the gospel honestly and urgently with them. Share the gospel with the ones you love. I want you to pay attention to these things as we now turn to Paul's sermon together. It's a lot of scripture, but but let's just hear it together. Acts 13, we're going to read verses 16 through 41. Okay. Paul stood up and motioned with his hands and said, 
fellow Israelites, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our ancestors, made the people prosper during their stay in the land of Egypt, and led them out of it with a mighty arm. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their lands as an inheritance. This all took about 450 years. After this, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then he, they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After removing him, he raised up David as their king and testified about him. I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart who will carry out my will. From this man's descendants, he is promised. God brought to Israel the Savior Jesus. Before his coming to public attention, John had previously proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Now it was John, no, now as John was compelling his mission, he said, Who do you think I am? I'm not the one. But one is coming after me, and I am not worthy to untie the sandals of his feet. Brothers and sisters, children of Abraham's race, and those among you who fear God, it is to us that the word of this salvation has been sent. Since the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize him or the sayings of the prophet that they read every Sabbath, they have fulfilled their words by condemning him. Though they found no grounds for his death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him killed. When they had carried out all that had been done, all that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And he appeared for many days to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have become your father. As to his rising him, raising him from the dead, never to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure promises of David. Therefore, he also says in another passage, you will not let your Holy One see decay. For David, after serving God's purpose in his own generation, fell asleep, was buried with his father, and decayed. But the one God raised up did not decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man, forgiveness of sin is being proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes is justified through him, from everything you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. So beware that what is said in the prophets does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, marvel and vanish away, because I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will never believe, even if someone were to explain it to you. Paul preached God's message, this gospel. We do God's mission in His way, and when we do that, we preach God's message. We proclaim God's truth, and that's what Paul's doing. 
Now, I want to leave you with just four concluding thoughts that I hope you'll think about and you'll pray about and, and you'll meditate on it. Maybe you'll have a discussion on your way home from here or maybe at lunch, maybe with your children, maybe with your spouse. These four things from this whole section of Scripture we've read today that I just hope the Holy Spirit and you will have a dialogue in. Number one, these are the observations to think about. If we are honest in our proclamation of God's Word, God will create the interest in those He has appointed to save. If we are honest, if we are clear with the proclamation of God's Word, God will stir up the interest in those He's appointed to save. Number two, those who God has appointed for salvation will eventually believe because God is doing a work in them. Those who God has appointed to salvation will eventually believe because God is doing a work in them. Number three, the gospel proclaimed fully and clearly will quite often stir up opposition and persecution. So we should be prepared for such things. The gospel proclaimed fully and clearly will often stir up opposition and persecution, so we should be prepared for such things. And finally, number four. Because proclaiming the gospel is God's mode for His saving mission, it will do exactly as God intends for it to do. Therefore, we should find joy in doing our part and proclaim the gospel to all creation. Because proclaiming the gospel is God's mode for his saving mission, it will do exactly as God intends for it to do. Therefore, we should find joy in doing our part in proclaiming the gospel to all creation. Let's pray. Lord, I am so grateful that someone proclaimed the good news to all of us. That you appointed those in here who, who profess you as Lord to salvation, and we heard, you opened ears, and you opened eyes, and you brought a messenger to speak truth. And Lord, let that not end with us. Let us speak truth to others. Lord, move us in love for the lostness of the people around us, neighbors, co-workers, friends, family members. Lord, move us so ferociously because of our love for them, so urgently that we can do nothing but share the gospel. It's the, the deepest longing of our heart for their souls to have a positive personal relationship with you. And Lord, I pray for any who's been hearing this, who I've called to repent and, and profess you as Lord, I would ask that you would be doing a work in them. You would help them to see, that you would open their eyes so they could clearly see and hear your truth of the saving work of Jesus Christ and be saved. Lord, I am so thankful that you give us the plans and we don't have to come up with them. That you give us the message and we don't have to come up with that because we are not good at that stuff. But you are, and you know exactly what is necessary. And so, Lord, give us the strength and the courage to trust you, to, to hold to the sufficiency of your plan and your message and know that it will do the work as you have ordained it to do. And God, we, we're here. Send us to our neighbors and our family, our coworkers, whatever that might be, that we would do our part and proclaim truth to a world desperately in need of a Savior. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray.
Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.